0: Following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. I had to think for a second about where I was. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number twenty-three on Morgoth's rings. Morgoth's ring. As we uh, continue to work steadily. Towards the finish line of this book here, um, uh, so um, yeah, welcome everybody. This is uh, uh, today is the second day of our fall fundraising campaign. Uh, we launched our campaign last night. Uh, it was good to see many of you guys uh, attending uh, last night. Um, I uh, the recording is uh, posted for those of you who missed our our, our readings and my uh, discussion of our fundraising campaign. Um, I, the t- couple things that I wanted to talk about kind of in connection with that. That's our announcement today is the fundraising campaign uh, and sort of talking about that. Um, I wanted to tell you guys. About, so, first of all, for those of you who missed the big reveal last night, I can show you if I can not injure myself. <clears throat> the thing that I was revealing last night was our official accreditation documentation that I've been writing for the last several months. Um, uh, so this is, uh, you'll remember, you know, that time when we, um, uh, you know, when when I, had, I took a, a hiatus uh, from class for several weeks, this is what... I was writing <laughs> during that time. Uh, there was a major drafting period then, uh, and uh, we've been polishing up and finishing our exhibits and things like that. So uh, this is—I uh, can't pick this up too many times, or I'm gonna like get tendonitis or something. But um, uh, <laughs> Bruce says, "Is it in? Is it uh, is, is it in, in like iambic or trochee or what? Yeah, it's um, it's it's a bunch of pounds, Marianne. I'm not quite sure." Exactly how many pounds this is, but it's um, uh, it's um, it's a big deal. Uh, so anyway, uh, this has been a, it's been a huge thing. We have officially begun. As always, I have to emphasize: we never want to create. It's it's very important that we don't create any false impressions. I don't want anybody thinking or saying after I talk about this like, oh, so Signum is officially accredited now. No, the process. Has begun. Uh, we have officially applied for accreditation, uh, and uh, we are working our way through that process. And that's our big documentation. Um, uh, so anyway, it's it's a it's a huge deal. Uh, I share this primarily because those of you who uh, uh, have been supporting Signum for so long know how long we have been working towards this uh, point. And there's the writing of that big book was a big deal. Uh, and that took a very great deal of effort. Um, and I will say (laughs) probably all things considered some of the most unpleasant effort I've ever put forward. Um, there were parts of it that I enjoyed, but, uh, I have to tell you that was not a chore that was fun all the way through. That's for sure. Um, but anyway, (laughs) um, the, um, it far obviously far beyond just uh, uh, assembling the review you know assembling the materials um it, the you know the process of building our institution to the point where we were ready to be looked at like this and to uh, to to continue we had our first big evaluation two years ago with the state of New Hampshire which was an enormous uh, landmark uh, and now to be finally taking the the last step here uh, to institutional accreditation is a big deal again disclaimer as always we don't know the time frame because that's not in our hand as to where's we, how how long it will take us to complete this process uh, and we uh, cannot guarantee. You know uh, what the outcome will be, Um, but uh, but of course I feel I feel confident. I am I am confident in uh, in Signum and in what we have built, Uh, and uh, I am uh, uh, feeling really really good about this, and I'm 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 very happy with uh, uh, with our institution and where we've gotten. And I just wanted to um, uh, just wanted to share that uh, with you guys. Um, So uh, uh, anyway. As I said, our fundraising campaign is well launched. Uh, we have uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of things underway. The biggest thing that the theme of our, you know, we do a theme of our campaign every year, uh, because for me, one of the most important things about the fall fundraising campaign uh, is the opportunity to kind of take stock and and really sort of share with everybody where we are, like what is going on at Signum? What is the, what is the, what is the, what is the state of the university? I do my official state of the university address at the end of the campaign. Um, But, you know, where are we and what exactly is going on? And this year, this year is especially important because this year we're in a particularly important place, I think. And our theme for this year uh, is answering the call um, because the, the passage I, I read, the passage that's been on my mind and sort of on my heart for uh, for months now, um, is the passage right at the end of the Council of Elrond after Frodo volunteers to take the ring uh, when Elrond says to him that he thinks that he, you know, has has chosen rightly uh and then says to him you know this is the hour of the shire folk when they emerge from their quiet fields to shake the towers and councils of the great and that sentence has been the sentence that's really been on my mind for a long time um for months now especially during the whole uh you know during the covid crisis as i've been watching (laughs) higher education is in trouble it's in big trouble right now um there is a uh, it goes beyond crisis um we're sort of facing a potential apocalypse in higher education uh, across the industry right now. Um, And this is something that I've been anticipating. I've been predicting that, actually, for some time. Higher education has been on this road for a while now. Um, But, of course, the COVID situation has rapidly accelerated that, which makes it really hard uh, because while the... Catastrophe was approaching slowly. There was more opportunity to try to turn things around and try to make a try to make an impact before disaster befell. Well, now disaster's here, and uh, the thing that I've been thinking and feeling very frequently um, over these last six months is I've been looking around and seeing seeing the problems all over higher education, and the continuous theme that I keep <laughs> finding as I'm looking around is. The problems that everybody is having, these are all the things that Signum does really well. And like we didn't, you know, again, I, I the other passage I've been thinking of from the Lord of the Rings is, uh, uh, is, um, Sam, you know, uh, Sam saying, uh, uh, to, you know, to himself on the, in Curithungle, um, you know, uh, uh Bilbo and Frodo didn't choose themselves, right? They didn't put themselves forward; they were put forward. I, I'm I've been I've been feeling that way. Um, I've been feeling that way about Signum, actually. You know that um, I would not have like a year ago. I was not. I would not have been thinking about saying, saying basically to the industry, saying to the rest of higher education, among whom we have barely even really established ourselves as a peer. Right. Uh, I mean, most schools don't look at Signum as a peer. We're this little, tiny, little upstart institution. And yet now um, what we do is exactly what everybody else is trying to do and with very mixed results. Um, uh, And a lot of people are struggling. And what I'm hearing from every quarter, what I'm hearing is like we just, you know, people really need to figure out how to do this right or how to do, you know, or we're really struggling with this and everything, like almost everything people are saying, I'm like, yeah, we, no, we, uh we, that's what we do. <laughs> Actually, that's kind of exactly everything along the way. That's exactly what we, so, you know, I'm, I'm finding, uh, you know, I, I, my experience of the last several months has been feeling like there is, there is hope for the future of higher education. And we, we, we have a model, we have a model that, that works, that is, I, I won't say immune. Well, it's not immune to problems, but it's immune to the problems that higher education is facing. The major issues that are causing the trauma in higher education right now are exactly point by point down the line. The things that either Signum has figured out over its nine years how to do differently, or it was established in order to do differently. Like with you know, it's, it's like we've, we've defined ourselves, you know, uh, contrary to them from the very beginning. Um, uh, so, um, anyway, that's, that's, that's kind of, and so I have been feeling it increasingly important. We need hope in 2020 people need hope in 2020. Um, higher education needs hope in 2020 and here we are, you know, here we have a model. You know, Signum University, um, I've been saying this a little bit, I won't say flippantly, but I've been saying this lightly for years now, you know, that Signum is, you know, a new model university for the 21st century. And all of a sudden, that now feels like a very serious thing to say. We do, in fact, have a model which addresses most of the problems that higher education is facing. And people don't know it. People are struggling. I keep reading articles. If only we could figure out how to do this. And what they say, I'm like, we're doing exactly that. We're doing just what you say. Um, We need to. um, uh, We need to. We need to. 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 You know, like the world needs to figure out. We've already figured that out um so um we are uh uh i am we're gonna be stepping forward uh you know, since we've been put forward, we're going to stand forward and we're gonna answer the call, and we're going to offer to every anyone who will listen uh what we have learned and what we have seen, and to try to help both students to sort of show students that there is a different model right there is a different alternative and also to show to schools. There's a way here. Um and we would even like to help. Um we would even like to uh, uh to, to help institutions of higher education. There are a lot of schools that really need to adapt now, in a hurry. Um a lot of schools, long old traditional schools, which are gonna be facing bankruptcy within, you know, 12 to 24 months um, if they don't make some very quick changes and really quick changes is not the strength of higher education, Um, but we can help. Um, I am ready to help. We are ready to help to show what we have learned. Um, So during the course of the campaign, in keeping with this theme, I'm going to be talking before all of my broadcasts, I'm going through, you know, I say I've been looking around and seeing all these problems. I'm going to be going through, uh, the 10 problems, uh, that confront higher education that exist, either external problems that confront higher education, or to be frankly honest problems, which higher education has created for itself, uh, over the years. Uh, and, um, Uh, So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to look at these 10 problems and I'm going to talk a little bit about how signum provides an alternative to that. Um, but I'm not going to talk in too much. I'm not going to like spend my whole time talking about that because I could easily do that. And and we're not going to do that because we're going to get back to, we're going to get back to the notes on the commentary of the athrobeth, which is really important. Um, but, um, uh, uh, but anyway, the, the 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 issue I talked about last night in my first uh, one of these sessions before exploring the Lord of the Rings uh, was the student debt problem, and that was one, of course, of the the, the first fundamental uh, issues that Signum came into being in order to to address. It was the it was my own personal grief looking out at the the suffering that was being caused among college students that. Stimulated me to make the step. There were there were other things that inspired me to to want to do it, uh, to, to you know to, to want to offer courses uh, in the way that that I was offering them, you know that Signum offers them. Uh, but it was the student debt problem that gave me the conviction to say I, I want to lay it on the line, leave my tenured job, and do this because uh, I think it's really important. Today, what I want to talk about it. Problem number two, which faces higher education in the 21st century, and especially now moving forward, is. Rem- remote learning. Um, everyone is concerned about remote learning. Everyone is having to do remote learning. It's happening everywhere and everybody's complaining about it. Very, it's, it's as I mentioned earlier, very mixed results. When Signum began, um, this of course was the, one of the other cornerstones that we began with, um, was uh, the... Um, the the insight that I got through my experiment, which many of you will remember, with the Silmarillion seminar, um, which was the the experience, the pedagogical experience, which opened my eyes uh, and helped me to see how the internet makes remote learning possible and the wonderful potential uh, that remote learning could have. Um, of course, at the time, 2011, uh, which was when we launched Signum, in 2011 there was a lot of online education going on, but almost all of it everywhere was following the model of the traditional correspondence course. Online education had evolved out of the old correspondence courses go back a long time, right? Um, uh, you know that was like it was the correspondence courses were hot in the 19th century, right? I mean, it you know you 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 send away from materials, they send you materials, you read it, you do work, you mail it back in, they send you your grade. Like Anne of Green Gables did uh, <laughs> did correspondence courses, uh, right? From from Green Gables in the second book. Um, so I mean, it's like th- this is an old tradition. And online education essentially. Grew out of that, right? It was it was correspondence courses made more efficient because you could use the internet, right? So you could get much quicker turnaround, right, on the sending of materials and on the submission of work and on the evaluation of the work and stuff. Um, And the the fundamental principle, the very first principle that Signum was founded on, was this very simple premise that the internet. When it comes to teaching, when it comes to online teaching, the Internet should primarily be used as a tool to connect people, not just as a tool to distribute content. That's it. The Internet should be used as a tool to connect people, not to distribute content, or not only to distribute content. Uh, And so, Signum, we established ourselves essentially in opposition to... Um, I mean, I remember this in 2011, looking around, having that experience, which I started in 2010 with the Silmarillion seminar, uh, having that experience of teaching online with the Silmarillion seminar and being like, this is amazing. Like, this is incredible. Uh, You can do these real dynamic classes and it's, 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 it's great. You can do fantastic synchronous classroom teaching online. Surely people are going to, are doing this because this is, uh, this is obvious. This is great. uh, And it's not hard to do. And people, and I'm looking around and I'm like, Somebody's doing this, right? Nobody is doing this. I'm looking around and I'm like who's doing this? And uh, eventually um uh, <laughs> Cecilia says Mr. Rogers had a correspondence course in the neighborhood of Make Believe. I remember that. I remember that. Absolutely. Uh yeah, so um I remember looking around saying um saying Well, you know, nobody's doing this and then being like, well, all right, fine, I will. (laughs) Right. And that's one of the reasons, again, it's one of the reasons Signum was founded. Um, Now... Since that time, of course, online education has changed a lot in one sense. Uh, the primary way in which it has changed is it has become very mainstream. I mean, uh, I, back in 2011, I don't know if you guys, how will you remember this, but it was a clear experience for me when I first started in 2011, 2012. And I told people, like, I've started an online school. I used to get, oh... You know, like that, like people treat it, you know, it was like if you said I'm teaching courses online, people would respond to you like you're just as if you were just saying, like, I'm selling merchandise out of the back of my truck. Right. Is, is basically what uh, uh, how people responded to you since that time. It has gone mainstream right now. Online education is a big thing and everybody does it. And that's great. But the correspondence course model um, is still a persistent problem. Right, That's where it came from. Almost all uh, mainstream online education morphed from the traditional correspondence course model. There are new and more synchronous elements that have been added to it often in many places but the cor the 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 correspondence course model persists and persists in I think some really uh negative ways um there's still it's there there's still a kind of infection from the correspondence course roots that's still like the default template that most, that almost all online education is still primarily based on. And there are two reasons for that. I would say, generalize and say there are two big reasons um, why that has tended to persist even over the last five years um, that online education has been so big. One, Uh, One of these is a good reason and one of these is not a good. There's a reputable reason and a disreputable reason, I think, uh, why uh, the correspondence course model has really uh, continued as it has. The, The reputable reason, the good reason, is that uh, one of the big priorities among online programs, and this is online programs everywhere, is on flexibility. Right, learn at your own pace, be able to kind of learn at uh, you know at, at your own pace and on your own schedule, enabling people, empowering students to be able to uh, to learn in conjunction with whatever you know job or family uh, responsibilities they had, and that is an admirable goal. Flexibility is important. The convenience of students is important. That does empower people, and that's a really really good thing. Um, that's the good reason. The bad reason uh, why, and so uh, I should, let me connect the last dot there, because the priority was on flexibility, therefore, uh, to have to still basically stick to fundamentally a fundamentally, you know, to have asynchronous material, you know, a, a course primarily consists of asynchronous materials that you put out there and allow students to go through it on their own and at their own pace enables that kind of flexibility. So as I say, that's the good reason. Um, the bad reason, the disreputable reason uh, for continuing the, the correspondence course model is that there was also a desire, one of the reasons, one of the disreputable reasons why higher education, why higher education as a whole embraced online learning, is that it was embraced by very, very many schools as a way to pad their financial margins, right? Um, to be able to produce courses, which would cost the schools very much less to put on, but which they could charge students the same amount for. In fact, I have known students, I have known particular schools where you could choose between taking a course online or taking the course on campus, and the online version was more expensive because you paid the same tuition, but you also paid an extra convenience fee on top for the privilege of taking the course online. Um, So I... At many schools, again, I'm not saying everywhere. I'm not making like blanket generalizations, but it is a it is a very common trend. It has been a very common trend that schools will charge full tuition for these classes and then but they're not paying faculty. Uh, In the same way, you know, if you're because the more asynchronous it is, you can pay a faculty member once to set it up and then never pay that faculty member again and keep running the same materials again and again and again uh, until you like refresh it or replace it eventually several years down the road. Um, And. That is uh, that's 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 the disreputable reason, basically, that um, because to commit to the kind of synchronous teaching that Signum has been committed to from the beginning, you, you, you have to it, it's demanding. In terms of people hours. You actually have to employ faculty. In fact, it, it's more time intensive to do education our way than it is to do it even a normal brick and mortar way, much less uh, the traditional online way. Um, but that's, uh, that is the decision that we always made from the beginning. What separated Signum from most of the rest of online education is that from the very beginning, we were committed to that principle. We have always prioritized personal contact Uh, in our, we've always prioritized teaching. And that means if we have to choose between sacrificing the quality of our teaching, uh, and sacrificing, you know, like the quality of the educational experience and the, the personal connections, right? Um, if we have to choose to sacrifice that or to sacrifice flexibility and convenience, we sacrifice flexibility and convenience. We try to be as flexible as we can be, and we're pretty good at being flexible, but it's not the highest priority. Um, it's absolutely not what we promise. What we promise is that you have, you're going to have people. You're going to have human beings who are committed to you and teaching with you and, and interacting with you. Um, you're going to be part of a live personal environment. Um, uh, that's the, our core <clears throat> principle. So anyway, um, then, of course, into all this COVID hits and now all of a sudden everybody literally everybody around the entire world is trying to do remote learning. And some people are doing a great job. I mean, many teachers have been doing heroic work uh, over the last six months, making it, you know, especially last spring in the middle of the crisis. And now in the fall, as people are rolling out weirdly and with weird changes and things changing all over the place, it's been a remarkable, remarkable time. And teachers, especially again, on like an individual classroom to classroom basis, many teachers out there are doing a wonderful, wonderful job. uh, and some schools as a whole are handling it really, really well. Um, I mean, I give a little shout out to my kid's school. Uh, you know, the Academy for Science and Design in Nashua, New Hampshire, is doing a great job with their remote learning. Uh, I've been really pleased with my kid's school. Um but it's been very uneven. Many have struggled. Many schools have really struggled. And there's been, you know, I've been, I've heard lots of outcry against remote learning. Um, lots of people saying, hey, this whole remote learning thing, uh, uh, you know, really stinks. It doesn't work. Yeah, no, no, not the way that you're doing it. Um, and uh, there there are, again, there are two observations, two general observations uh, that I would make um, about uh, all of this stuff. Uh, one thing uh, is that again, one problem that has been, uh, I think, fueling many of the problems with the remote learning is still that lingering uh, sort of that persistent model of the correspondence course um, that when people have been, many institutions have been saying, OK, we need to transfer now to doing all of our stuff online, uh, you know, because we can't be on campus. Uh, in, in many cases, uh, that has meant we're going to take what was a synchronous course experience and we're going to transform that. We're going to try to transform that into an asynchronous, you know, a, a, or at least a large, much more asynchronous than it was before. And people are feeling the lack of that. People are saying, like, no, I'm missing, you know, this is not what I, pay. This is not what I paid for. Right. I paid to like be in classes with professors, not to just be. Given work and again, to be doing a correspondence course, if I would wanted a correspondence course, I'd have signed up for that. Right. So that that's one problem that people have been having when they're trying to convert their stuff to online and they're making it to asynchronous. They're making it it's too correspondence course. The other problem has been kind of in the other extreme, right? When people just try to say like, okay, teachers do the same thing you've been doing in class, except over Zoom. Right. So just, you know, like, so there's everybody. There's like your 30 students in the class and there's everybody's cameras and mics open. And we're just going to pretend we're having exactly the same class experience that we used. To, and I'm going to do things exactly. And it does. It's it. And it's it's not been working, especially, of course, this is a particularly challenging, obviously, on the K through 12 level. Um, But in colleges as well, it's just it's not been good because you can't, you know, people you have to think through how this works like there we've had nine years to experiment and to think very carefully through how you conduct synchronous courses online there are there are definitely ways in which you can take advantage uh, of the online environment and actually have an even more intimately interactive class in an online environment than you can um in a in even in a brick and mortar classroom um but you you've got to you've got to you've got to think about it right you can't um yeah. And as, as Stephen says, for instance, that can't possibly work because you can't throw chalk at students over Zoom, which is very true. That's one of the many limitations, uh, in fact, of that model. Um, but um, anyhow, so uh, bet- between like, you know, some, you know, some combination of these two things, a lot of people have been really struggling with um, uh, with how to do remote learning properly. I was laughing. I was reading an article in The New York Times which said here's how remote learning should, you know remote learning has by and large been a failure so far here's how it should be done like if if remote learning were done this way it would be this is the way to make it really successful And then he describes Signum's model. Like, it's exactly what we do at Signum. And then at the end, he's like, but, you know, like, it's unrealistic. Like, it's when I even think about trying to implement that, it's like, man, like, we will never be able to do that. Um, Who would do that? And I'm like, dude, it's what we've been doing for 10 years. Um, But um, uh, anyway, um, so. uh, So, yes, I mean, this is. As I say, we've been doing this for a long time. Um, we we have, uh, you know, we have a, a model like this and we have what we have had is year after year after year. We have students who take courses with us who have been taking online, you know, people who did their entire undergraduate programs, uh, you know, online and then come and to do their master's degree online with us uh, and who almost all of them say, whoa, this is like nothing I've ever experienced before. This is a completely different kind of educational experience, um, which is unlike any other online experience I have ever had. Um, And that's, um, that's our goal. That's, that's, that's always been our goal. Our goal is always to exceed all standards, not just online standards, but even brick and mortar standards um, for personal contact and personal connections. Um, I'll, Talk more about uh, the specifics of our model and about what what remote education at Signum looks like. I don't want to take the whole class uh, on this, um, but uh, I'm going to be doing a session on the 15th of October, near the end of the fundraising campaign. On the 15th of October, which is a Thursday night, uh, I'm going to be doing a session called Signum Who We Are, where I'm going to be going through much more sort of thoroughly... What is this model, right? This new model for, for you know, I say we're the model university for the 21st century. What does exactly that model look like? What are its components? How exactly have we addressed all of these problems? And I'm going to be going through this stuff uh, during that session on the 15th of October. So uh, thanks for uh, listening to me. I, got, I, 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 I can't be silent anymore about, you know, the things that we do and the things that we have learned. Um, people need to... People need to know that there, there, are, there, there is a school out there which actually does these things well and is ready to help and to teach people how to do these things well, uh, to do all that we can to help others. Um, so um, uh, that's our proclamation here uh, during uh, this campaign. Um, thank you to those of you who have already donated uh, and supporting Signum University. Uh, we have already, uh, in gifts and pledges, Uh, uh, For this year, we've already raised almost $50,000, which is absolutely wonderful. Our goal is to get up to a minimum of $75,000 for our annual fund for the year. If we can hit $75,000 that will also cover uh, our expenses for the rest of the accreditation process. For those of you who were with us a couple years back when we first did our first call for help uh, when we were up uh, uh, being reviewed by New Hampshire, um, so many people gave so generously then we still have $19,000 in the bank from that. Um, So we're going to be, we're we're already using that uh, in the early stages here of the accreditation process. Um, We need a little bit more on top of that in order to make sure that we have enough to complete the the accreditation review over the course of this year. Um, uh, But again, if we can get to 75,000 um we will uh we will hit it. So I commend to you uh, the website that's on the bottom of this uh slide here signumuniversity.org/fund. Uh you can get more information on our fund. I I especially would uh commend to your attention if you're unfamiliar with it our uh our donor rewards program at the bottom we love to give presents uh to people who uh, who make donations, uh, so we are really really happy to uh, to to commemorate and acknowledge your gifts with uh, generosity on our part uh, so we have a we have uh, a lot of the things that we can um, that we can give to you and and, and, and show you there so um, so please do check that out if you uh, haven 't had a chance to give yet. I hope you'll consider giving. I know that these are hard times. And of course, no judgment against anyone who is struggling financially and can't give right now. Um, But even a few bucks a month, you can set up a monthly donation. And we've got a a number of people who give. We have about 130 people who make monthly donations, um, you know, ranging anywhere from $5 a month uh, up to several hundred dollars a month. And uh, again, even just on, uh, you know, anywhere in that range, uh, those gifts are really sort of the backbone of our, um, uh, of our annual fund. Uh, and it, it makes an enormous impact, uh, for our institutions. So, um, anyway, I would, um, uh, uh, I would really, um, uh, just, again, Thanks to everybody who has donated, and, and I hope that you will consider donating. Uh, and I, as you know, this is this, this fall fundraising season is when I uh, I come out and say these things. I don't talk about fundraising all that much. I don't like to uh, you know have my have my my hat my hat out and my hand extended uh, all the year round. But of course, Signum does rely very heavily uh, upon our supporters. You know, what we have done, I'm always thinking about this when I'm writing up the accreditation documentation because and, you know, just like I was when I was writing up our review materials for the state of New Hampshire, um, because, of course, we have to go over like the institutional history and stuff a lot. And I'm just always struck again. You know, um, I, I don't know that there's ever been a university that has been founded on a completely crowdfunded basis. Right. Almost every school that's ever started has started with a a gift, like a seed gift, right? The origin story of almost every university goes back to like you know, the wealthy donor who contributed, you know, the land for the school or, you know, whatever, like, and, you know, Farmer Smith gave the barn and that's where we started holding classes, you know, or that, or whether it's, you know, some, you know, large endowment by some foundation or some wealthy person. Um, and, uh, Signum has started from scratch with absolutely nothing. We've never had any initial gift. Um, we have, built what we have built. Uh, you know, we have built a program which defines itself by aggressively low tuition, right, by charging people as little as we possibly can. And yet we have survived and grown from nothing with supported only by uh, the 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 annual generosity, the annual and monthly generosity uh, of those of you guys who have been supporting us from the start. Uh, and that is uh, uh, that is incredibly um incredibly, um, just, it's moving to see and, uh, an amazing accomplishment that you guys have sort of accomplished with us as we have gone through. Um, anyway, but enough of that. Let us now go on to go back to the athrobath or rather the commentary on the athrobath or Rather, the notes on the commentary of the athrobeth, because that's what we're going to talk about for most of class tonight is the notes, which I think are the meatiest part of that commentary. Um, It does seem fairly clear that the the commentary is intended for um, somebody who is not really familiar with the material. Um, But that is what makes his approach to uh, the thing that I'm most interested in in these notes is... In the commentary itself, he's explaining the story right he's giving the background for the story uh and uh, uh sort of saying what um uh like the giving you all the background you need of from the fictional world right the notes are where he is addressing the theological and philosophical issues that arise right um here's what you need to know in the commentary here's what you need to know from the st- for the story right the notes are Tolkien going into teacher mode, explaining the philosophical principles that he and theological principles he's been wrestling with, um, and that we've been watching him wrestle with over the course of the you know the evolution uh, of the annals and the Quent and the later Quenta material. Um, so, um, uh, so these notes I think are really fascinating, and they show we we, we will see there him again sort of explaining objectively, objectively in the sense of it not just emerging organically and spontaneously out of the narrative that he's writing, like it was in the debate of the Valar, for instance, um, but him really kind of approaching these things point by point. And also the other thing that's interesting about them is it shows it's not just the answers that he gives to the sort of, you know, like the questions that he asks and the answers that he gives to those questions. It's which questions is he asking, right? Which items of all the elements that are brought up in the athrobath, which are the things that he singles out to explain, right? Which are the things he feels he needs to explain. Um, and then what explanation does he give of them? Um, so there's a lot of this material, which is not exactly new, but I think it's worth, uh, looking through because, um, we can see him kind of packaging it differently. And I think that will help to kind of put a capstone on looking at where his thought has been headed on a lot of this stuff as we've been going through, uh, this material, not only in the Athrobeth but really for the majority of Morgoth's ring to this point. So... Uh, This is from Note 1, talking about Eru in creation. The Eldar held that Eru was and is free at all stages. This freedom was shown in the music by his introduction, after the arising of the discords of Melkor, of the two new themes representing the coming of elves and men, which were not in his first communication. He may, therefore, in stage 5, introduce things directly, which were not in the music, and so are not achieved through the Valar. It remains nonetheless true in general to regard Ea as achieved through their mediation. That is the Valar's mediation. So the the question he's addressing is where, where are the lines of responsibility, right, between the Valar and Eru, right? How much of it is the Valar doing it and how much of it is Eru doing it? It remains true in general to regard Ea as achieved through their mediation right? The Valar are free. The Valar are given a real role, right? Um, they're, they're sing they're singing the music, right? It's their music. He propounds the theme to them and then they sing it, but he retains, but that, that is, you can't take that as a rule. You can't say what the Valar says is all that happens, right? Um, because, um, uh, you can't say that, the, that that what the Vowers say is, is all that happens because it's very clear. Eru does act independently. He does delegate creation, in a sense, but he doesn't—he's not hands-off by any means, right? Um, uh, and the primary example that he points to there is the, the, the two new themes. The two new themes are Iluvatar's themes that were not there, right? They were not in his first—when he first propounds the music— to the Valar, they did not contain those themes. Those are, if you want to say it this way, though I don't think this is the right way to say it. It's like Eru that's imp- improvisations by Eru during the music in response to the to the uh, to the discord, right? Um, now again, that's not quite the right way to say it. Um, improvisation implies a kind of. Um, improvisation implies that you don't know what's going to happen, right? Uh, that you're kind of... To say that you're making something up as you go along is to imply that you're subject of time, is to imply that you're going along, right? Uh, it's not the making up that's the problem there. It's the going along that's the problem, right? The, uh, you know, um, eru is not necessarily within time in a way which would enable improvisation in that way. So that's why um, I am... Resisting my own use of the word improvisation there, but but you see what I mean. They were they were they were new at least. They were they were newer things that he introduced later that were not original. So we know he does that, and there's no reason to think he doesn't carry on doing that. Uh, and so therefore, in stage five, now yeah, David, I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to remember the number of the stages. Um, stage five, I believe stage five is what he's referring to as the time like after the vision, like the after the vision is removed, right? Like, so the the span of time in the history of Arda, which was not contained within the vision that he gave to the Valar, I'm pretty sure that that's what stage five is. But I can't remember exactly what, like, stage one, two, three, and four are. So if somebody remembers from the context earlier uh, in the note there, um, that would be helpful to remember. Uh, yeah, Devorah was just asking the same thing. Yeah, I'm trying to remember that as well. Um, but um, anyway, okay, so... Uh, let me let me continue on here. Uh, the additions of Eru, however, will not be alien. They will be accommodated to the nature and character of Ea and of those that dwell in it. They may enhance the past and enrich the, its purpose and significance, but they will contain it and not destroy it. So Eru's innovations are not merely innovative. They're not just new. They're not a completely different thing. This is not him merely overwriting. What came before. This is not him merely, uh, superseding it, just replacing stuff and being like, you know, he hasn't, he he doesn't call a halt to the music and then say, okay, I'm starting up a completely new, everybody shut up, I'm doing a new tune now. That's not how Eru worked, right? His introduction of the themes, it was an enrichment to the, um, uh, to the, uh, to the music itself. Um, yeah. Yeah. Steven, exactly. It's more like adding a new harmony line, which enriches the melody uh, as a whole. Right. Um, rather than stopping the melody and starting a brand new melody. Right. Oh, good. Thank you. Giant 98 on uh, Twitch says uh, that stage five was the achievement of the vision. OK, right. So if you've got. Um, all right. Oh, so how did it work? Gosh, I wish I could remember this more clearly. Um, so, working backwards, what stage five is the achievement of the visions. Stage four would have been the vision itself, right? Uh, stage three would have been um, the wait. I'm missing a stage. It'd be the music itself, and then there was the uh, the propounding of the themes. But that's only four stages. There must be another stage in there that I'm uh, that I'm forgetting about. Anyway, sorry. I apologize for forgetting. How to enumerate the stages there, um, but it, but anyway, it's it's the it's the in, by in stage he he may therefore in stage five introduce things directly. It means even now after creation has happened, like as the history of Arda is proceeding, he can still, just as he intervened with the new themes back during the music, he can still intervene with new things even now um, it's, 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 it's not too late uh, for Iluvatar to innovate um, his creation is still unfolding and he's still an active part of that and he is free at all stages thus the newness of the themes of the children of Eru, elves and men, consisted in the association of Fear with or housing them in Ho'ar, beginning belonging to Ea in such a way that either were incomplete without the others. But the fea'r were not spirits of a wholly different kind to the Ainur, whereas the bodies were of a kind closely akin to the bodies of living things already in the primary design, even if adapted to their new function or modified by the indwelling fea'r. So... Notice what he's done here. This is, this is really taking a step. For, and again, this is the kind of thing when I say we see him sort of stepping back and doing a teacherly explanation of things, right? We see him putting things together in this kind of concise fashion that we didn't see while he was kind of feeling his way through uh, to this stuff earlier on. Um, thank you. James, I appreciate that. Okay. Stage one that I was... For, stage one is the creation of the Ainur. Okay. Okay, James. I knew there was a stage I was missing. So stage one... T- James Liebach has spelled them out for me. Uh, stage one was the creation of the Ainur. Stage two, the communication. Like when he propounded his themes to the Ainur. Uh, stage three is the great music. Stage four is the vision. And then stage five is the achievement of the vision. Okay. Phew. Thank you, James. I feel better having sorted that out uh, thank you for reminding me there. Um, but, um, okay. So, um, so, so we see, so we've, we, you know, he, he's been, we've seen him sorting out the whole Fea and Roa thing, right? Uh, you know, he's been working that through ever since, you know, the back, ever since Finway and Muriel threw a wrench into all this stuff, right? Um, So, but notice now the way that he is placing this in the context of creation itself, right? Um, What is new about the Children of Eru? What makes the Children of Eru an innovation on his part? The thing that had never happened was incarnation, essentially. That was the new thing. There had been spirits before. There had been beings before. The faar of elves and men are like... They're not the same as, but they're like the Ainur. There had already existed spiritual beings who were separate from Iluvatar and had free will, right? That, ex- that, was, a, that was already a thing, right? So he has, in the one hand, he's building on what's already happened. He's not just completely, uh, uh, again, he's not completely coming in from left field here, right? Um, but yet there is something quite new that the Ainur had never imagined before. And that is the incarnation of the Fea in Ahroa belonging to, to Ea. And notice again how that also is not wholly unheard of. When the Ainur descended, right? When the Valar come, when they become the Valar, when they descend into and kind of commit to Arda, they're bound to Arda. They're they are bound within Arda and they um they, you know, their life is connected with its life. Um, and they can make bodies for themselves, right? They can manifest themselves and interact uh, with the the stuff of Ea, right? With the stuff of Arda. Um, but not like this, right? So it's it's the Fair are kind of like them. The Hroa are kind of like the, the bodies that they can put together. The connection, be- you know, the association between the spiritual world and the physical world has already been established and now Eru takes that concept and makes this wholly new thing by making this unique connection so um so now again, if we think back to those initial deliberations um um when we think back to those initial deliberations about how exactly are the the spirit and the body of elves related to each other, and of course, throughout the Athrobath, how does that differ from how the spirits and bodies of men are connected with each other um you know through all of that that this has now crystallized into this like the essence of the innovation of Aluvatar here and i think that this this is this is gorgeous the way that this comes together as an illustration of how the things that aluvatar does within his creation are on the one hand unilateral and entirely new and yet also not entirely new um also familiar and harmonious with what already is part of and has always been part of the core principle uh, of of Arda and of Ea itself. So yes, George, when the Valar come to Arda, they don't acquire Froar. They are not incarnate. Um, it does work differently with them. They are Fëar only. They are their spirits, right? They they are spiritual beings. They can choose through the, their own power, through the power of their own spirits, to manifest bodies that can interact with physical things. Um, but that is just a sort of a subcreation of their own power. It's not. Um, They don't have bodies. Their feyre are not um, housed in or associated with, not tied to, uh, the stuff of Ea itself. If you went up and shook hands with Manwe, which I wouldn't recommend because that would be very cheeky, but if you were to shake Manwe's hand, um, what you would be touching is not the matter of Arda. Right, um what he would be touching when he shook your hand would be you know from dust we are into dust we shall return, right I mean, our flesh is the stuff of Arda um you know, back to you know Hamlet's insight about the you know the how you can find you know parts of Alexander the Great um you know stopping a bunghole right I mean it's it's that the matter of Arda is in constant circulation and there's a chunk of the stuff of Arda that's been used before in other circumstances and is now being used in my body. Right. Um, it's not like that with the Valar at all. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Jana. it is interesting that Tolkien explicitly connects the proar of the elves and men by the criteria of producing viable offspring, uh, almost as a biologist might. It is true that the fact that human and elves can interbreed, right, there may be a gulf between them spiritually, right? Um, uh, you know, thinking back, of course, to uh, uh, Finrod and, and Andreth's words, but, um, um, but biologically yeah their 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 ho are are similar right their roa are are compatible in a sense um what differs about them is the fact that they have the the relationship between the fea and the roa is different right the the nature of the fea is different the destiny of the of the fea the doom of the fea is different um and the the link between the the nature of the link between the fea and the roa uh is different um yeah um So, um, okay. Let's keep going. Note two. I didn't skip very many notes, but I didn't do too many passages from each note either. Um, Arda, or the kingdom of Arda, as being directly under the kingship of Eru's vicegerent Manwe, is not easy to translate, since neither earth nor world are entirely suitable. Physically, Arda was what we should call the solar system. Presumably, the Eldar could have had as much and as accurate information concerning this, its structure, origin, and its relation to the rest of Ea, the universe, as they could comprehend. Probably those who were interested did acquire this knowledge. Not all the Eldar were interested in everything. Most of them concentrated their attention on, or as they said, were in love with, the Earth. The traditions here referred to have come down from the Eldar of the First Age, through elves who never were directly acquainted with the Valar, and through men who received lore from the elves, but who had myths and cosmogonic legends and astronomical guesses of their own. There is, however, nothing in them that seriously conflicts with the present human notions of the solar system, and its size and position relative to the universe. It must be remembered, however, that it does not necessarily follow that true information concerning Arda, such as the ancient Eldar might have received from the Valar, must agree with men's present theories. Also, the Eldar and the Valar were not overwhelmed or even principally impressed by notions of size and distance. Their interest, certainly the interest of the Silmarillion and all related matter, may be termed dramatic places or words were interesting or important because of what happened in them okay there is a lot to unpack here um uh okay um so all right the um uh Oh David was pointing uh, thinking about the this the link between the uh um, where the innovation of Iluvatar was um is that that it seems to add credence to Andrath's argument that men were intended to be immortal in their first nature, yeah, the similar the compatibility uh the sort of fundamental similar even if their dooms are different, the similarity between elves and men yeah, I agree it does um it does seem more fitting, which by the way, in his defense. Finrod, though he didn't have any idea of that, um, and had always assumed that it was just part of the way that men were designed by Iluvatar from the beginning, that they should be so short-lived, um, remember when he responds, when he hears her explaining this, his immediate response to that is not just, okay, I'm willing to believe it, but that, that feels right, right? His heart, his heart responded to that, um, in a way like it does when it's hearing truth, right? That, um, it's he doesn't quite go as far as to say yeah that old idea about death being the gift of a never really felt right to be totally honest with you right he, he doesn't say that um but again, it's it it feels like he receives her um her teaching he probes at it and pushes at it to uh, to make sure um but it seems that he receives that um uh um that, that, that he receives that sort of joyfully. Again, in that way, remember uh, Tolkien described this, the way that elves respond to true things, right? To truth. Um, I think that's what we're seeing there. Um, okay, so we've already seen, and we saw this early on in our discussions of Morgoth. We saw this months and months ago in our discussions of Morgoth Ring, um, way back when we were looking at the Ainulindale. I mean, remember we had like the flat earth Ainulindale and the round earth Ainulindale, Um And we, so we saw that impulse from the beginning. And when I say the beginning, I mean the beginning of the, let's go back and revise the Silmarillion after writing the Lord of the Rings time, right? Um, so from the like late forties, um, we saw from the beginning of that time one of the things that he was doing when he was coming to reconcile the ancient legends you know trying ancient both in terms of the history of middle earth and ancient in terms of his own life right um when he was revising those old systems uh one of the first things that we saw him anxious about in ways that we have never seen him anxious before right there is he makes no compromise with modern science in the book of Lost Tales, right? It's just not on the table. That's not what he's thinking about at all, right? And now he is. Now we see him doing that. And so we saw that impulse to say, maybe I should redo the Aino and make the earth round from the beginning. Let's skip the whole, you know, world made round business, right? Um, and of course you'll remember uh, that thanks to, oh no, I've forgotten her name. What was her name? The woman who he gave the manuscripts to and who told him like, Keep the Flat Earth one. Uh, and we all agreed, or at least I agreed with myself and several of you agreed with me, uh, that I was very thankful for her. And here I've forgotten her name. Darn it. Somebody remind me of her name. I don't want to forget it. Maybe if I'm reminded enough times, I'll, I'll eventually remember. You yeah, with an F. F-U. I don't remember where it went after that. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, yeah. So exactly, Nancy. The one containing Morgoth's secret moon base. That's it. That's it. That's um, it. Wait, was it Rona Bear? No, it wasn't Rona Bear. It was it was somebody else. It was a Mrs. an F. I know it of the Neff. Um uh, uh anyway. It's back in the I know a section. Um So um uh anyway, okay, so we saw he was debate, but now we haven't been there for a long time, right? As we've been watching his we've been watching how his narrative has been shifting, right, from one genre of narrative to a new genre, to a, you know, to a genre which is which is closer to the genre of The Lord of the Rings, right, more like a historical romance. He does seem to be increasingly contemplating rewriting the Silmarillion, at least, you know, the chunks of the Silmarillion more. Um, uh, Catherine Ferrer That was it. It was an F-U. It was F-A. Ferrer yes, Catherine Ferrer That was the one. That was the one. Ferrer, Mrs. Ferrer. Yes. Thank you, Catherine Ferrer, for convincing him to stick with the Flat Earth version um, and not having Morgoth's secret moon base in the published Silmarillion. Um, so, again, we've been watching his narrative style, his narrative approach to the Silmarillion evolving. We've been watching his many of his ideas, uh, philosophical and theological ideas, wrestling with those and and working those out and resolving those until now. He has achieved by the end of the athrobath has achieved this gorgeous, new, really complicated and really beautiful vision for what the Doom of Men and the Doom of Elves is, how they connect together, why Iluvatar created the two races in the first place, which you know goes back and 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 enriches all of the previous stuff so wonderfully um but um uh anyway um they um so we've been we've been focusing on that stuff now for some time but this impulse hasn't gone away right this i don't know if it's fair to call it anxiety um that might not be quite a fair way to characterize it but let me experiment with it. Tolkien's anxiety about the apparent contradiction of the Silmarillion legends with things that we modern people know to be true about the solar system, starting with the round, with the ronger of the Earth, and then going on to, uh, you know, the heliocentric solar uh, system and stuff. Um, he seems anxious to defend... Let me say that not just to call him anxious in general, but he does seem anxious to defend the wisdom of the elves and of the Valar, right? Um, It's as if he feels that the entire system falls apart as a story. If, on the one hand, he's asking us to, to, to give secondary belief to the concept that the Valar who were part of creation itself, right, who, who designed the world and taught the elves personally. So these elves who learned about the history of the world and the creation of the world from the people who had a hand in it are talking about flat earths and the earth being made round. Like how how do those things hold together at all, right? How is that possible? Um, it's one thing to tell, a, you know, a fun mythological story about a flat earth or an earth shaped like a Viking longship, but um, it's, it's um, you know, it's hard to keep it up. It's hard to keep it up now that we're, he is asking us to, uh to, devote a, a, a really a different kind of secondary belief um, in the story, right? And that's what we can see there in that second paragraph. Well, the first paragraph for a second, of course, um, you will remember, especially back in the I Know Linda Lay discussions, I commented on the fact that one of the things that Christopher was most interested in in his commentary, was on the evolution of the concept of what A referred to, right? Um, and he spent a lot of time trying to sort of, in, sort of demonstrate the way that those ideas were growing and shifting over time. And I was confessing at the time that I was myself a little bit um, uh, less interested in that question uh, than Christopher was. This stuff here at the end is like The culmination, right? This is what Christopher was building towards, knowing. So now we've gotten to a place. Tolkien has redefined Ea and Arda, right? And so now you see he is defining Arda. Arda is the solar system, right? This is a new definition that he is finalizing here, right? Arda means the solar system. Ea is the universe. That distinction was not clear before right? But again, notice the need for the distinction stems from the same impulse. Surely if the Valar were part of creation, they would know that this little planet around this one little sun is not the only such system in the entire cosmos, right? Um, The idea that the world depicted in the Silmarillion myths is a tiny, compact little world, right, Um, seems again something that's fundamentally ignorant like the Valar don't know about the rest of the universe. Right. Um, and, uh, um, I, um, sorry, I should be careful. Yana, um, I was using the word cosmos because I was looking for a synonym, not just reusing the same words Tolkien was using here because I was trying to talk about those words. Um, I'm trying to remember. Jana's asking about it. Is there a distinction between universe and cosmos in you know in 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 um in you know the con the conceptions here? <clears throat> I I don't know because I don't recall Tolkien using the word. Cosmos is a Greek word, right? Um, the word which is uh, uh, traditionally translated world. I but like in the New Testament, it's traditionally translated world. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, like. John three sixteen right for God so loved the world <clears throat> cosmos I believe is I'm if I'm remembering correctly the Greek word that is used in John three sixteen there that is translated world um, but again Tolkien doesn't use the word cosmos so I want to steer clear of that I was just I was using that for convenience and I'm going to chuck it right out the window uh, until I see Tolkien start using that word because um, I don't want to convey I don't want to add terms that he's not using here um, but anyway um uh solar system and universe. So now he's and and the world, the planet is something different. The planet is not Arda and it's not Ea. Right? It's it it's it's a different thing and he's going to be you know he's going to be talking about that specifically. Um yeah, it is it is cosmon. Yeah, I, I, I was pretty sure Stephen, that it was that it was there in John 316. Um I am not a great Greek scholar, but um uh I uh, I'm pretty sure I remembered that. Um, uh, yeah, it's 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 related to. It's not the word cosmos, but it's 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 uh, same word. Anyway, okay. Um, so notice the little point that he gives us at the end of that first paragraph, though. Um, what is one reason we don't get more about the rest of the universe? Why is it that we don't get anything about the Andromeda galaxy, for instance? Right in uh, in in Um, the Silmarillion, because the Elves aren't particularly interested in the Andromeda Galaxy. That's why, right? Um, the Elves, not all the Eldar were interested in everything, right? Uh, most of them concentrated their attention on, or as they said, were in love with the Earth, right? Their focus was here on what they were surrounded by. That's where their love was. And so that's what they cared about. That's what, and so that's what their stories are about. And so if you heard their stories, you could talk to elves who were very knowledgeable about how things, you know, really work and what things are really like. But yet by their stories, you wouldn't necessarily know it because they don't talk about it, right? So that's one really fun piece of retcon he's already doing, which also not only tells us stuff about the solar system and its relationship, you know, and the, and the, and the, and the universe and its relationship in, um, uh, uh, in, um, uh, the, 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 you know, the way that he's conceiving that things ha- things working. It also tells us of course about the elves, right? It builds on, on, you know, his subcreation of the elves themselves. Um, David exactly, exactly David always pointing out how, therefore, by this logic, the development of human science fits with the picture that he was painting in the Athrobath, right, because we humans are strangers here and are looking about us uh you know at things as if they're Strange to us, right? This is why we have this scientific impulse. This is why we study the world, the way you know, the universe, the way that we do, and in in, in a different way than elves do. Uh, yeah, exactly. It does fit in very well uh, with uh, with Tolkien's picture of that. Um, uh, yeah. So Jocelyn asks a really great question. You know, can we presume from this that like does this mean maybe there are other Valar? hanging out in the, Andromeda, in the Andromeda Galaxy, doing different stuff there, right? It's not Arda, it's a different kingdom, right? Whatever um, uh, whatever the, that kingdom is called, if, if there are multiple little kingdoms within Ea and only our batch of Valar, the ones that we're familiar with, um, that is, like, theoretically possible, but no. I mean, he's going to say, Clearly, that that is not, in fact, what happened. Um, that that does not make any part of his story. But again, like in theory, it kind of could. Um, and yes, yeah, several of you guys, uh, Devorah and Brianna, are are thinking about um, uh, out of the silent planet, and uh, uh, and Lewis thinking about Devorah was talking about the field of Arbol, which is what C.S. Lewis calls the solar the the the, the solar system. Uh, the solar system is identified as like the core, you know like Arda, you know, he's dealing with a similar unit there. um, uh, What he calls the field of Arbol. Arbol is the sun, so the field of Arbol is the solar system. Um, And Brianna's thinking about the elves of Paralandra. Yeah, Lewis is very much addressing a similar kind of thing. Tolkien doesn't go there. We'll get back to Tolkien and extraterrestrials in a little while. Um, But anyway, back to the business about human science uh, and what we know about the solar system. There is, however, nothing in them that is in the legends, um, anything that seriously conflicts with the present human notions of the solar system and its size and position relative to the universe. What I see here, I don't see this as, like, special pleading. It would be easy to read this and be like, okay, Tolkien, like, you're trying to, you know, be like, no, it's okay, like, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. I, I think what he's saying here is simply... um. If it appears to you, if this is a stumbling block for you, don't don't worry about it, right? Um, it doesn't actually conflict. There are things that might sound different. The emphasis is different, but it's just it's a different in the storytelling, right? Um, if you need to be reassured that the el- that the Valar in particular and the elves who learn from the Valar know the real story know what you know that are, are in fact have been briefed about the heliocentric solar system then then be comforted right um it's fine but it's just not what's important to them um um but notice his provisos right one of the, so there are two reasons why the legends themselves don't talk a whole lot about the you know Round Earth and the the uh, solar system and other galaxies and stuff like that. There's a reason why they don't talk about that. One is the one he already gave, the elves being in love with the Earth and being that being what they primarily focus on. The second thing is um, notice that the qualifications that he gives in that first sentence there. The traditions that we have referred to, that is, the Silmarillion itself, right, has come down from the Eldar of the First Age through elves who were never directly acquainted with the Valar. So there are some, you know, the elves like the the Dark Elves, right? The Moraquendi who never went to Valinor, what do they know, right? Um, in fact, it's it's perfectly likely to think, um, it would be perfectly likely that, say, Legolas, right, or... Um, or um you know the barrel elves in uh the hobbit right let's 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 think about the Merkwood barrel elves who sing songs about um barrels plopping down into rivers, right um those elves, there's every reason to think that they are actually more ignorant than your average humans about how the solar system works. Because not only do they not have access to special information from the Valar, they never met them, they also kind of don't care, right? They're too busy having fun rolling barrels into rivers uh, to care particularly much about whether or not there are galaxies out there that they can't access, right? Um, Again, that's not the way that um, that elves think. Um right or Haldir, exactly. Yeah, also Haldir. Um James Lieback is thinking, I was thinking of this too, um, about uh Sherlock Holmes asking why uh, why he cares whether the Earth goes around the sun or vice versa. It doesn't matter, says Sherlock. It has absolutely no impact uh on my wife. Um and it is, you know, that's a perspective. He's right he's not wrong about that. Um but anyway it is certainly more emphatically true uh for elves um, so so again first of all a lot of that lore was transmitted through uh you know gray elves and you know through, through elves who did not in fact know the valar and so who could not necessarily be expected to know all this stuff and they also would have had their own myths and cosmogonic legends right but also men have received this lore from the elves and they had their own myths and legends and astronomical guesses of their own so they have influenced them so, like the whole flat Earth thing. No, he's not saying he's not actually asking us to believe that Arda really was flat necessarily, right? Um, what he so notice what he's done here? He was choosing between do I do the flat Earth Inoindole or the round Earth Inoindole. He has it both ways now, right? I'm gonna keep telling the flat Earth stories. I'm going to remain invested in the flat earth myth, but I'm not going to insist that that was historically accurate, right? No, no, it probably didn't actually happen that way, but that's okay. That doesn't mean that the story, that the myth is not important and interesting on its own, right? Um, That's a really, really nifty thing that he's done there. But now notice, now he gets a little stubborn. Um, Now we see Tolkien digging in his heels a little bit against the modern world. Right. It must be remembered, however, that it does not necessarily follow that, that true information concerning Arda must agree with men's present theories, present theories being the important thing. Right. Um. In, you know, 10 years or 50 years or 500 years from now, we may have a very different view of how the universe works than we do right now. So. Uh, part of that is Tolkien saying, why should I bother to... Um, it's If it were a question of connecting his myths explicitly to what we knew was certainly true about the universe, that's one thing, right? But this is him pointing out, how much do we know? Yes, we have these theories, and we feel very confident in these theories. But Tolkien, of course, was very familiar with the fact that that has often been true of humanity. Uh, and just as there are things that we look back now to 500 years in the past and say, boy, how could they believe those things? You've got to know that 500 years from now, there will be many things that you believe and that you look down on other people for not believing, which 500 years from now, they're going to be looking back and saying, how on earth could they possibly have believed that? Um, you know that's going to that's has always happened, and there's no reason to think it's not going to continue to be true. Um, uh, I mean, goodness, there's even things I can look at over the course of like my own life, or you know, the lives of certainly you know our parents. Um, uh, but um, you know where where that's uh, where that's where that's true. Um, Yeah, Stephen is saying that we're pretty sure we've reached the pinnacle of human knowledge and we know everything now without error. Yes, exactly. That is pretty much what most people seem to uh, often seem to think. Um, But um, anyway, so uh, so, yes. So so, again, this is one of the one of the under uh, the undertones or or sort of the, the subtext, I think, of that sentence is Tolkien basically saying and this is one of the reasons, I think, why he is kind of coming, uh, being at peace with the flat earth mythology, right? And feeling like it's it's OK. He doesn't have to reconcile that, even though we see that he still uh, he recognizes that it could be an obstacle to secondary belief. Um, but um, but here I think we can see him saying, look, there's it's OK for mythology to be Indefinite. You know, for mythology to like, mythology is permanent in a way that scientific theories cannot ever be, right? So if you're trying to, if you're writing mythology, just about the dumbest thing you could do is try to reconcile your mythology at all points with the current state of scientific theories at the moment you write it. Um, there is nothing that will make what you write less permanent, less deep, less meaningful than trying to tie it in that kind of way. So um, uh, imagining that they have true information, it's so, you, you it's, it's not, you can't just say that if they had true information, then obviously they would agree with all of our current, present theories. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway. Anyway. Um, okay, so way there's another point I was gonna make um, oh yeah also the business about notions of size and distance here Tolkien is speaking in particular to this was a huge deal. Um, there was a lot of discussion about this this was a this was a major point of intellectual discussion and debate in you know the first and second Quarters of the 20th century, um, you can see Lewis talking about this a lot. You can see Chesterton talking about this a lot, even back in the um, you know in the in the latter parts of the first quarter uh, of the century. Um, the The mere magnitude of the universe, um, as you know, uh, you know, astronomy was advancing and we were moving towards space travel and everything. Um, the um, um, Uh, The 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 size of the universe, the the mere size, you know, the distance between stars and everything uh, is something which was held to be itself of of like of qualitative value. Right. Um, A lot of people spent a lot of time emphasizing how important it is that the Earth is merely this tiny, minuscule speck uh, in the in, in, you know, in this incredibly literally, incredibly, like, inconceivably vast universe. Um, and this is Tolkien saying, you know, the elves are not really impressed by that. Um, the Size and distance didn't really affect them much. Their interest, their primary interest was dramatic. Um, places or worlds were interesting or important because of what happened in them. So, in other words, it doesn't matter. That the world is a tiny speck in relation to the rest of the universe. What matters is that what happens on the Earth is interesting and important, right? Um, and remains interesting important, and important, and interesting and important no matter how big the rest of the universe is. Um, exactly, Devorah. Our planet is tiny, so it must not matter all that much. That was uh, a, a major argument point. Uh, in the, you know, there are a lot of people saying that and those kinds of things, uh, in the first half of the 20th century. So that's Tolkien addressing, addressing this. Um, okay, let's keep going. Still a note too, because we have to talk about ETs and UFOs. These views are not mathematical or or astronomical or even biological and so cannot be held necessar- to necessarily to conflict with the theories of our physical sciences, that is, elves' views, uh, the views reflected in their stories. We cannot say that there must be elsewhere in Ea, other solar systems like Arda, still less that, if there are, they or any one of them must contain a parallel to Imbar. Imbar is our planet, right? That's the new word that he's now introduced. So Imbar is our planet, Arda is the solar system, Ea is the universe in the new Uh, Definitions here. We cannot even say that these things are mathematically very likely, but even if the presence elsewhere in Ea of biological life was demonstrable, it would not invalidate the elvish view that Arda, at least while it endures, is the dramatic center. The demonstration that there existed elsewhere incarnates parallel to the children of Eru would, of course, modify the picture, though not wholly invalidate it. The elvish answer would probably be, Well, that is another tale. It is not our tale. Eru can no doubt bring to pass more than one, more than one tale, that is. Not everything is adumbrated in the Einelindele, or the Einelindele may have a wider reference than we knew. Other dramas, like in kind if different in process and result, may have gone on in Ea, or may yet go on. But they would certainly add, But they are not going on now. The drama of Arda is the present concern of Ea. Actually, it is plainly the view of the Elvish tradition that the drama of Arda is unique. We cannot at present assert that this is untrue. Um, uh, exactly, devorah The elves, of course, would say both yes and no. Um, uh, yeah. Um. Uh, yeah, Stephen, this is one of the um this is CS Lewis's favorite response to so when people in the first half of the 20th century kept saying But now we know that the earth is just a tiny little speck. Like, how can we possibly continue believing, you know, in like the Christian tradition saying that the world is super important and that God has put all this attention and focus on this one little speck? Why should we why should anyone believe that now that we know the size of the world, the relative size of the world compared to the universe? And yes, Stephen, C.S. Lewis's favorite response to that argument was Christians have always known that the world was a tiny speck compared to the size of the universe. This has been known. This was a fundamental part of the medieval worldview. Um, uh, nobody ever believed that the world was big, that the world was the whole universe. Um, uh, so, yes, yes, that, that is, in fact, not at all a new idea. Um, but anyway, so what would elves say about alien life? Right, what would elves say about the existence of other of of, of other life? The f- central point of this passage is again the focus on the drama of Arda. The elves believe that Arda is the dramatic center of the story of Eä. The the story, as they have told it from the Aino-Indo way forward, um, gives you know Arda is the dramatic center. Melkor the source of the discord, right? We've talked about the differences between uh Tolkien's mythology and uh traditional Christian mythology in the sense of the fall, right? How um Tolkien makes Arda-mard predate the beginning of elves and men, right? You know, he, he sort of makes the fall of Melkor of more primal significance. The 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 flawedness of the world does not date from the fall of man, but from the discord of melkor right so we've we've talked about that one being one significant difference uh in tolkien's mythology from the christian tradition but um uh, nevertheless um what that also shows is that arda is the central battleground right um melkor melkor's efforts are focused on arda the valar have come in. And so, so Jocelyn, this is where he basically says, yeah, no, there are no, there's not a separate set of Valar in the Andromeda galaxy. Right. Um, not as far as anybody knows. Um, and the elves don't believe that it's true. They don't, they don't believe that that is so they believe that Arda is the dramatic center of this whole story of Aeah. Um, and I love his elvish answer. Right. Um, Notice how he says, and and by the way, if you can show that there's biological life on other planets, the elves wouldn't care. That would not invalidate the elves' belief. They would still say, Arda is the dramatic center of the world. Does life exist somewhere else? Okay, Eru can create life somewhere else if he wants to. You know, he's free, right? Um, but um, uh, but that doesn't change the fact that Arda is the dramatic center, um, and. Uh, um, uh, yeah no Jocelyn, you're right, very good thank you for correcting me on that Jocelyn he doesn't say it he says that the elves say it, which is an important difference right um yeah and David yeah we'll keep coming back to this uh in myths transf in myths transformed we will see him continuing to wrestle with these ideas right um but this is where this is where he is right here right when he's explaining this stuff um he does admit if there are other incarnates. If there are other, now, right, to use Lewis's term, uh, you know, if there are other rational species, other Thea-Hroa combinations in other worlds, um, if there are, in fact, is there, if there is, in fact, intelligent life on other planets, um, that would modify the picture. Um, but he still does not say that, that even that would necessarily invalidate the elves' picture, that Arda is the dramatic center of the story of Ea. Um, And notice, by the way, that also Lewis agrees with the same thing. Uh, and if ever we discuss Paralandra uh, in uh, the Mythgard Academy, you'll see him working through that um, uh, a little bit more explicitly. Um, anyway, so the elves' belief, their certain belief, is that the drama of Arda is the present concern of Ea, and... Tolkien's interpretation of the Elvish tradition is that they believe it is unique. And notice he says, we cannot, we being we 20th century humans, cannot at present assert that this is untrue. You might speculate that there's intelligent life elsewhere, but we don't know. Uh, and so therefore, you have no business having problems with the Elves for this reason. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. That is a story for another time. Exactly. Um yeah. Okay. Um this is a, a really short note that I just I wanted to pick up on for a very very focused reason um in note 3 they that is elves were given a choice because arrow did not allow their free will to be taken away. Similarly the house that is uh, the 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 choice between Abiding by the summons to Mandos or not. Similarly, the houseless Fe'ar were summoned, not brought to Mandos. They could refuse the summons, but this would imply that they were in. S- oh no, sorry. The choice is whether or not to go back, whether or not to to take a body again. And then he says, similarly, the houseless Fe'ar were summoned, not brought to Mandos. They could refuse the summons, but this would imply that they were in some way tainted, or that they would not wish to, ref- or they would not wish to refuse the authority of Mandos. Refusal had grave consequences. Inevitable produce proceeding from the rebellion against authority, so they have the free choice to not go if they do it's a bad sign, right It shows that they're making bad you know it's 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 evidence that they're making bad it's the wrong choice right um and it means that they're they're already clearly on the wrong road if they're making that that wrong choice um but but they're free. The main reason that I wanted to quote this passage there are some people who read the line from the Silmarillion about how uh, humans, like, remember in in the Ina when the will of humans, the freedom of the will of humans is contrasted, it's when when the gift of death is talked about, when the gift of Iluvatar is talked about, and how, like, unlike the elves, the humans are free, uh, and, you know, can, like, alter the music and stuff. There are many people who um, uh, who read um, uh, who read that passage as like Obvious evidence that elves don't have free will um you know that el- so elves don't have free will, but humans do i've heard many people make that argument based on that passage, and when you try to argue against these people, they're like it says right there elves don't have free will, humans have free will, and elves don't so you can say all you like that it sounds like elves do, but the text says that they don't uh this text says that they do right it is very very clear uh that Tolkien believed that the elves had free will this again seems to me perfectly obvious from the stories themselves anyway but um but again let's uh i i let's have no more nonsense about elves not having any free will they obviously do um now arthur uh the business about the business about the freedom of, about free will and Uh, consequences, right? Uh, Yes, your will is free, but that doesn't mean that every choice you can make is equally good for you, right? Um, You are free to rebel against the Valar and against Eru. That doesn't make it a good idea, right? That doesn't mean that decision is going to pan out for you. You can be left free to do it, and yet... you can have free choices and yet the, some of your choices be very bad choices. And so it is very possible for there to be a should without there, there being a compulsion. Right. And yet the should remains, right. That's no, that's no compromise of freedom to say that there is a, uh there is a right path and a wrong path. And that's clearly uh that's clearly part of uh, uh part of the schema here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah exactly Tomas there's no reason to to whack the fan or the fan or piñata if there's no free will right um exactly exactly um uh, yeah so exa- Nancy that's the passage that i'm talking about the one where it talks about how like more free in some sense uh the 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 humans are I am not saying that that sentence is meaningless, right? He is providing a contrast there. Um, There is a sense in which the humans are less, you know, bound. Um, As Brian suggests, um, that elves have free will. They can make free choices, but they're more sort of constrained by their nature to behave in certain ways than humans are. Brian, I think, uh, I mean, that sounds to me kind of right. I think about the... um, the um uh the monogamy issue right um elves in marriage right um it was clear that the the elvish marriage patterns are um you know baked in right uh to the elves their will is free like they could Act differently if they want to, and some of them do. It happens. We see uh, even uh, people deviating from that, you know, uh, kind of uh, fundamental baseline. Um, but, um, uh, but still, they're 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 not inclined towards, uh, you know, whereas humans don't have the same natural inclination towards monogamy that elves appear to have. Um, So that sentence could be referring to things like that. But again, my point is just any conclusion from that sentence, which says, therefore, elves don't have free will. It is it is it is not so elves have free will. Okay. note four. death among men and hobbits sooner or late. Because that is about death. Death sooner or death late. You know, the slow-footed hunter, all that stuff. Because the elves believed that the feyar of dead men also went to Mandos without choice in the matter, their free will with regard to death was taken away, there they waited until they were surrendered to Eru. The truth of this is not asserted. No living man was allowed to go to amon No fea of a dead man ever returned to life in Middle-earth. To all such statements and decrees, there are always some exceptions because of the freedom of Eru. Eärendil reached Amon, even in the time of the ban. But he bore the Silmaril, recovered by his ancestress Luthien, and he was half-elven. He was not allowed to return to Middle-earth. Beren returned to actual life for a short time, but he was not actually seen again by living men. So, uh, in that case, in Beren's case, it remained true that the, the... that, like dead men, previously dead men also told no tales. The passing over sea to Arisaia, an isle within sight of Amon, was permitted to, and indeed urged upon, all elves remaining in Middle-earth after the downfall of Morgoth and Angband. This really marked the beginning of the Dominion of Men, though there was, in our view, a long twilight period between the downfall of Morgoth and the final overthrow of Sauron. Lasting, that is, through the second and third ages. Time out. Time out. Who's us? Who's us? I'll do it again. The passing over sea to Ar- Arisea, that is, the elves going over the sea, cured in the shipwright's job, was permitted to, and indeed urged upon, all elves remaining in Middle earth after the downfall of Morgoth and Angband. Okay, so all the elves in Middle earth are urged to go back to Valinor. No to Arisea. Fine. This really marked the beginning of the Dominion of Men. So it wasn't the end of the Third Age that was the beginning of the Dominion of Men. The beginning of the Dominion of Men happened at the end of the First Age, but there was a long twilight period between the downfall of Morgoth and the final overthrow of Sauron. So the Second and Third Ages were the long twilight of the time of the Elves and the dominion of men then really begins in earnest in the fourth age but it was already happening there but that parenthetical thing this is really remarked this really marked the beginning of the dominion of men though there was in our view a long twilight period in whose view was there a twilight period who is viewing the history of the elves and defining the second and third ages as a long twilight period. Let's keep going. But at the end of the Second Age came the Great Catastrophe, by an intervention of Eru that foreshadowed, as it were, the end of Arda, the annihilation of Numenor, and the removal of Amon from the physical world. The passing over sea, therefore, of mortals after the Catastrophe, which is recorded in The Lord of the Rings, is not quite the same thing not quite the same thing as the sailing to Aresia before the Catastrophe. It was in any case a special grace, an opportunity for dying according to the original plan for the unfallen. They went to a state in which they could acquire greater knowledge and peace of mind, being healed of all hurts both of mind and body, could at last surrender themselves, die of free will and even of desire in Estelle, a thing which Aragorn achieved without any such aid. Okay. Um, it could be, James, modern people could be the S. In our view, we modern people who have read The Lord of the Rings, that's possible. Um, you know what it sounds like? She has to touch. It sounds to me like the us in the prologue of The Lord of the Rings. I mean, like Hobbits. It sounds like the Red Book of Westmarch is what that sounds like to me. In our view, that is in the view of the Hobbits who are telling these stories, is kind of what that sounds like to me. Yes, Marianne, the translator of the Red Book, is exactly what I'm, what I'm thinking there. Um, now, I don't think he's consistent with that. I think that you know, if we look through all of the time in which Tolkien uses the first person, either singular or plural, in this commentary in notes, um, I don't think that—it y- it doesn't extend. To, to, I, I don't—some of them are clearly not applicable to Hobbits. But boy, doesn't that sound like the Red Book of Westmarch. I think it does, anyway, a very great deal. Um, um, yeah, exactly, James. It doesn't fit with the other notes in the commentary. Um but um, but if we take r instead as modern twentieth century readers, that is weird. That doesn't fit very well with that usage. Uh, in our view, because we don't view. The Second and Third ages is a long Twilight period. What view did we have of the Second and Third Ages, right? We didn't have any view of that, right? Uh, no view that we've gotten and we haven't gotten from reading The Lord of the Rings. So, um, yeah, I, I think, yeah, Giant98 on Twitch was thinking about the Red Book authors, too. Um, my theory here, James, is not that he, this is not to say this reveals that he meant hobbits all along. I don't think so. I think he's kind of slipping into that mode, Right. Uh, you know, he's, he's, it's a mode that he got used to, that he used a lot. Um, and I think that he's, uh, um, I think that he's, he's kind of slipped into that using the Hobbit we, uh, you know, the Hobbit us in that, uh, in that, in that moment. I don't know if he did it accidentally. I don't know if he was kind of toying for, you know, for a moment toying with the idea of using a frame, even for his commentary itself. Um, yeah i'm not really sure uh but I, I anyway that parenthetical i found really really fascinating um one thing we notice here is that um um and notice that he um clearly connects the mortal fates of hobbits and men here that's always implied Right. That hobbits are mortal and share a similar fate to that. You know, that uh, wherever hobbit, however, hobbits came to be exactly like they currently are. um, They are. Incarnates, they are one of the children of illusion. They are a subset of men, in other words. I mean, they're they are uh, they are plainly they're not a separate creation. They're not like the dwarves. Um, you know, they're not the stepchildren of, they're not the, the, the younger stepchildren, they're not the redheaded stepchildren of Luvatar. They are, um, they are, they're, they're men, essentially, uh, from a, an ontological standpoint, right? Um, and so here he is, he is explicitly confirming that, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, um... And here we get his, you know, we get suddenly we're leaping forward to to find out what happened to Frodo and Bilbo uh, when they went to tolaresia right? Um, in the end, they die. They die like Aragorn, right? They die like Aragorn uh, did, of free will, even of desire in Estelle. Um, that was the point of going, uh, is to be healed, to acquire greater knowledge and peace of mind, being healed of all hurts of both of mind and body, and in the end, surrendering themselves, Um Yes, yeah. But they, so here he's talking about the men. He's, this is him and uh, writing a note on a passage annotating um, Andreth's talking about how men were originally immortal. But they appear to have held, and indeed still to hold, that this desire for the Hroa shows that their later and present condition is not natural to them, and they remain in Estel that Eru will heal it. Not natural whether it is due wholly, as they earlier thought, to the weakening of the Hroa, derived from the debility introduced by Melkor into the substance of Arda upon which it must feed, or partly to the inevitable working of a dominant Fea upon oh, I'm sorry, I'm messing up the context again— um, He's talking about the elves here. It's not he's talking about the humans in this first sentence. He'll get to the humans, but he's starting off here talking about the elves. They, the elves, appear to have held and indeed still to hold that this desire. Notice the present tense there. See, James, here again, I was like, still to hold? Hang on a second. Um, elves still in the 20th century? Uh, are we introducing now, uh, an, like, are we making a claim? in the context of our private correspondence to whoever is reading the athrobeth, that of course both you and I know that elves are real and this is historical and the elves still exist and still hold these opinions. Um, that's another moment which kind of fits better with a Red Book of Westmarch reading. Um, doesn't it? Again, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, um, uh, that frame seems to me to be kind of peeking through a little bit. But they appear to have held, and indeed still to hold, that this desire for the Hroa shows that their later and present condition is not natural to them. That is, their the bodilessness. Elves don't have visible bodies anymore, right? Because of the way that the their fea is dominating their Hroa, as we looked at earlier. And they remain in Estelle that Eru will heal it. Not natural, whether it is due wholly as they earlier thought, to the weakening of the Hroa, Derived from the debility introduced by Melkor into the substance of Arda upon which it must feed, so the reason the Fea dominates the Hroa in the way that it does, and their bodies fade over time, is because the bodies are made of the stuff of Arda, and the stuff of Arda is weak and marred by Melkor. So there you go. Is that the reason why that happens, or partly to the inevitable working of a dominant Fea upon a natural Hroa through many ages? So maybe maybe that is how just how it's supposed to work. In the latter case. Natural can infer only to an ideal state in which unmarred matter could forever endure the indwelling of a perfectly adapted Fea. It cannot refer to the actual design of Eru since the themes of the children were introduced after the arising of the Discords of Melkor. That is, there was no conception of... It's impossible for the, uh, you know, unmarred elves to exist, to ever have existed, because the theme, the second theme of Iluvatar was not introduced until after the discord had already begun. The waning of the elvish Roar must therefore be part of the history of Arda as envisaged by Eru, and, and the mode in which the elves were made to make way for the dominion of men. The elves find their supersession by men a mystery, and a cause of grief. For they say that men, at least so largely governed as they are by the evil of Melkor, have less and less love for Arda in itself, and are largely busy in destroying it in the attempt to dominate it. Hard to argue with them there. They still believe that Eru's healing of all the griefs of Arda will come now by or through men, but the elves' part in the healing or redemption will be chiefly in the restoration of the love of Arda to which their memory of the past and understanding of what might have been will contribute. Arda, they say, will be destroyed by wicked men, or the wickedness in men, but healed through the goodness in men. The wickedness, the domineering lovelessness, the elves will offset. But the holiness of good men, their direct attachment to Eru, before and above all Eru's works, the elves may be delivered from the last of their griefs. By the holiness, by this, the elves may be delivered from the last of their griefs. Sadness. The sadness that must come, even from the unselfish love of anything less than Eru. Whew, okay. Again, a lot there. So, um, uh, um, Okay. We see Tolkien here in this note building on the concept that Finrod was playing with, right? When Finrod was first wrestling with the consequences, with the theological consequences of the doctrine that humans were not born mortal, right? We're not origin. We're not originally born, but uh, mortal. Um, uh, so. Um, Yeah. Finrod in the text, in the Athrobeth text, is just exploring the idea. Here we see Tolkien developing it further, right? Um, The holiness of men. So men are pretty bad, right? There's a lot of evil in men um, and they're going to end up destroying the world. Art art is going to end up being brought to an end through the wickedness of men. But the holiness of men... Um, their direct connection to Eru, the resurrection of the body, right? The 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 salvation of men is going to be the salvation of the elves as well, just as Finrod forebodes with joy, right? Um, and his he fleshes out here that mutual relationship, right? The elves are going to be delivered from death. The slow-footed hunter that Finrod is anticipating. When the end of Arda comes, the elves are done right? Um, no, the elves will be saved because the uh, because of humans, right? Because humans will have gone to prepare a place for them, right? Because humans will have gone and they will have brought some of Arda with them. Um, and therefore, the elves will be saved through the direct connection that has been established between Eru and the men, which was not established with the elves. The elves' primarily, primary relationship is not with Eru, it's with Arda, right? And that's why elves are primarily sad. That's why sadness is like the inevitable fate of elves. By the time we get to the end of Arda, right, when all of the history of Arda is in the past tense to them and, and living only in their memory— They will be left only with what might have been, and sadness will be the dominant note. Not necessarily regret, but sadness. Loss. You know, the memory of things that have been and are no longer will come to dominate almost all of the Elvish consciousness. And this, Tolkien says, is the inevitable consequence even of unselfish love for anything less than Eru himself. Loving Arda is a great, good thing. Um, and the elves, we need that. Humans need to be taught, to be retaught the love of Arda by the elves, right? That's one of the things they're going to supply. They're going to teach us how to love Arda again, right? Um, in Arda Remade, we will have the elves to show us how, it, how it's done, right? But their sadness is first going to be cured through uh, the uh, sort of model and intervention of uh uh of of men um yeah yeah um right so hang on so michael is saying going back to the last slide for a second hang on michael He's talking about the, at the end there, um, could at last surrender themselves, die of free will and even of desire and esto, a thing which Aragorn achieved without any such aid. Uh, Michael, I don't think, he's not saying there that that was the original plan for men. He's saying that is the best result for men now, right? Since men, um, death is not being taken away, right? Death remains the destiny of men, um, Again, remember, Michael, what he's talking about is like, so does this mean that Bilbo and Frodo are going to be immortal, or gonna live forever now that they've gone to the deathless lands? No, as the elves attempted to explain in the Akalabeth to the Numenorians, it doesn't work that way, right? You can go to the undying lands, but you'll still die there, right? Um uh so so he he's addressing that in part there, Michael. Um, no, Bilbo and Frodo don't live forever when they go to uh Toleresia. But they will be healed. They will come to a place where they will die of free will and even of desire in Estel. That is the optimal state that humans can now come to now. But that doesn't mean that that's how it was originally. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. I die. An opportunity for dying according to the original plan for the Unfallen. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Again, back to the conversation he's writing commentaries on here, that he's trying to explain. Um, the conclusion that what Finrod immediately says, the significance of Finrod's, um, the significance of Finrod's perception of the different psychology of men, them looking around, them being the strangers, right? Them being the guests, uh, instead of being natives to the, to, to Arda in the same way that elves are. Um, this is not their place. They were always meant for somewhere else. Uh, does that mean, so he's pushing, like, what he is clear on, he hears Andreth say, we were not meant ever to die. And she sounds like she's saying, we were supposed to be like you, but it was that was robbed from us, right? That was taken away from us. Um, we, we, we got this second-rate destiny uh, because we got ripped off by Melkor. Um, but originally, our destiny was the same as you. And he responds by saying, no, that can't be. That can't be. Your Hroa and your Fea just are not related to each other in the same way that ours are. Whatever your fate was, and maybe it was different, it wasn't that. It was never—the we we the fates of the elves and men were not originally identical, right? So in that sense, it's clear, um, however death would come, whatever that would look like— um, Remember that Finrod was talking about, like, what happens to the elves after they die? Their souls stay within Arda and they go over to Mandos and stuff. Um, even in the original plan for the unfallen, surely for men as for elves, mortality was possible. Like, you know, set a human being, an unfallen human being on fire and put them through the wood chipper and they're still going to die like their spirits and bodies will still separate from each other. Right. Um, so it's, it's, um, um, you know, uh, then, so his question was, and what would happen then? Right. And his, and that's, was his point. Like it would not be, it would not be the same. So I don't think that this necessarily, um, In some ways, perhaps, I think, Michael, a way to think about it, he gives, he does not, Finrod, I mean, Finrod does not challenge, does not question, does not openly disagree with Andreth's claim that according to the lore of humans, they used to be immortal. He doesn't deny that that's possible. But what he does say is, Okay, but it was different and it would have been different from us. Um, so one way or another, however the question of longevity was going to be, what was clear is that the souls of the lives of men were never meant to be contemporaneous with Arda, coterminous with Arda like elves are. Um, and so therefore, at some point, whether it be, Sooner and by choice, whether it be later, uh, uh, you know, by force, whether it be only at the end of the world or whatever. um, It was it was it would have been different uh, with men there. The original plan for the unfallen would have been would have been different. Um, uh, So. Yeah. 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 So anyway, it's it's but but it is tricky, Michael. I mean, I agree that's uh that is tough. It makes me wonder, perhaps what Tolkien is suggesting here, Michael. Perhaps he's suggesting that so you'll remember in the Athrobath, Finrod says because you're not you don't belong here, we always thought that if you guys no offense, but if you understood death properly, if you weren't so afraid of it. It would be like a happy thing, right? You'd be going home, and everybody would be throwing a party when you left, not because you were gone, but because you were going home, right? Um, sorry, I'm. Uh, I actually spent this afternoon at my grandmother's deathbed, uh, so I am this is rather in my mind as uh today as it were um i am a very fortunate uh man in my late 40s to have three of my grandparents still living uh and my 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 uh my father's mother is in uh the process of dying now today or tonight sometime um uh so yeah, i was literally at my grandmother's deathbed having these conver- these uh, uh conversations in very practical ways uh with members of my family earlier today um but um uh anyway uh it's um it is fortunately one of those um i've my goodness uh <laughs> tolkien can say that aragorn uh achieved uh this thing uh without any such aid, uh I would I would honestly say that uh my 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 grandmother did too. Uh uh but if there's uh if I've ever known a mortal uh that I would uh, whose death I would I would I would compare to Aragorn's uh it would uh, it would definitely be uh my uh my 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 grandmother. Um uh my dad and I were talking about that today. But anyway, um so yeah, anyway, like I said, this is, uh, um, it may be, so going back to it, when Finrod says, so maybe death was originally like a good thing, and it's just that, that a darkness has been put upon it. And remember, Andreth says, no, 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 not so, right? We weren't ever designed to die at all. Maybe she's not quite right. Maybe there is some, maybe they are mistaken. The traditions of men to some extent perhaps Michael this passage does give us a glimpse that um, uh, that uh, the because I mean we know that she I mean she is biased right uh, she and, andreth I mean you know she is embittered uh, and there are some ways some things that she sticks to um, sort of um, uh, 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 sort of stubbornly right um and which finrod kind of pushes against and then kind of backs off and is like never mind we won't go there right um, so i'm wondering michael maybe uh maybe he is saying that unfallen man would have not been subject to death automatically right maybe the thing that changed was not mortality in 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 a pure sense like they they still would have died but going back to the top of the passage, um, the free will of man with regard to death was taken away, right? Um, elves have a choice about whether or not to go to Mando's after they die. Men have no... Where their spirits go, uh, they don't get a vote anymore, right? Um, they do not choose to be uh, <laughs> to be taken anywhere. They don't choose their time of departure. Um, their free will with regard to death has been taken away. Um, And so, perhaps Michael, in a sense, um, uh, perhaps in a sense, uh, um, they, um, that's what he's sort of, how he's kind of reconciling this concept, right? That in a sense, Andreth is correct, that this whole involuntary mortality thing was not part of the original picture, but it doesn't mean Finrod is wrong to say that the ultimate home of humans was elsewhere and their, their destiny, right? Their goal, even their desire in Estelle would have been, should have been, um, to, um, die of free will, even of desire in Estelle. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. um, Yeah, interesting. Uh, David says maybe this is a clue about how the Valar um, could set up Numenor. Um, you know, why the Numenorians set up and the, 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 the you know longer lifespan and everything. Um, you know, the long lives to be surrendered at will were the original plan. That there is a way in which the Numenorians at the start did almost get back to the unfallen state. Um, uh Yes, that it was not merely a prolongation of life. You know, you're still going to die in the same old, un- involunt- but again, that they, they were able to make that change in this way. Um, yeah, it, that certainly bears, bears thinking about. Uh, 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 that bears thinking about. Yeah, sorry. Thank you guys for your... Uh, 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 several of you were saying I'd offer condolences, but it, it seems uh Devorah was saying I would offer condolences, but it, it seems like congratulations are more in order for having such a grandmother. Oh my goodness. Um, yes. Uh, thank you. I was, I was debating, you know, of course, of course I, you know, I came back I spent all afternoon at the hospital with my, you know, primarily consoling less my dad than, uh, my, my aunt, his sister, um, who's been the primary caregiver for my grandmother now for many years. And, um, uh he has been living in the same home with her for thirty four years now, uh in total. Uh first being taken care of by her mother and then taking care of her mother. Um but um uh anyway, so it was a you know it's a very emotional uh you know after afternoon saying goodbye and uh and comforting my uh my my, my aunt especially. Um and of course then I'm coming home and I'm like and now I get to talk about the Afterpath all evening and talk about death and hope, um, which seemed entirely fitting. So I was uh, I, I say, I didn't talk about it for a long time. I wasn't really uh, um, I wasn't really planning uh, on, uh, on 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 talking about it. Uh, but uh, you know, <laughs> I was literally having that conversation today, so I couldn't forbear to mention it. Um, but um, anyway. I also noticed that I am keeping everybody irresponsibly late this evening. Uh, So I'm going to let you guys go before I uh, take up any more of your time. Thank you guys so much uh, for this conversation today. Thank you for your good wishes. Uh, And um, I will, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll 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 finish up the notes next time and then do, um, I don't know, my hope is one more class and uh, on the whole like set of athrobeth materials and then we'll, we'll get to uh, myths transformed uh, by next time. So that's the, that's the plan. Uh, We're going to, we're going to, we're going to finish this stuff out, but um, uh, thanks. uh, uh, Thanks very much, everybody. Uh, Thanks for your support and uh, uh, for uh, uh, your, uh, your contributions to class tonight. And I will talk to you guys next week. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.